how the go-to executive consultant takes board of directors from crisis mode to learning the game has changed and we're not going back to normal. Next on Remote Space. Hello? Uh, yeah, right. I'm sending that over in an hour. The meeting today? Another one? Hold on one sec. Enough! (laughs) Working from home not as much fun as you imagined? Remote Space explores the tools and philosophies we use as we work more remotely. We'll talk to experts who have mastered remote work, those studying the shift in how we work, and those learning on the run. Here's your host, Doug Thomas. Anne Hyatt received her initial business training during 15 years as an executive business partner to Amazon CEO Jeff Bezos and then chief of staff for Google CEO Eric Schmidt. With this unique perspective, Anne now consults with executives and companies around the globe, including focusing on improving board of directors' work. A native Seattleite like myself, I spoke with Anne from her home in Spain. I read that once you described your role of working with CEOs like Jeff Bezos and Eric Schmidt as the head of an octopus, I just had to keep all the arms coordinated, picking up everything in the right order. So I want to take that analogy a little bit farther. Octopuses are a master of camouflage. Did that also relate to you and your job as uh, working for these CEOs? (laughs) Definitely. Actually, no one's ever asked me that before. I think uh, absolutely that's a big part of it. In fact, one of the best compliments I remember receiving in my teenage years was somebody described me as a chameleon. And that it's so easy for me to adapt my communication style or, you know, my methodology to the people around me. And I appreciate that. It was actually feedback during my first performance review of my very first job when I was 16 years old and had no idea what I was doing working at a startup way before anyone knew what a startup was. But I do think that chameleon personality served me well, especially around these big personalities. So I want to know, is there something that employers in a company that they should know about the CEOs, executive partners, and chief of staff. Is there something they should know about those folks? I mean, because that's something that's not taught. No, it's true. The savvy people know that that chief of staff should be made your best friend immediately if you want to get anything done at the company, because they're the ones who have their finger on the pulse of everything that's happening in the company. They know how to communicate most effectively with your CEO. And they've kind of tried out all the best practices. And so anybody who wants to be effective in a company, especially if they're new to the team, should make that person their best friend and absorb all of their best practices. I do that with uh, anyone who works on editing copy and anyone who who holds control of the floor supplies. I'm always making sure those yeah. are always my best friends. I just have to go a little farther up. So as a kind of a gatekeeper at times for these CEOs, What is something that people don't do correctly when they're preparing to meet the CEO, either in company or someone from out of the company? Is there something that you've seen that you're surprised sometimes people don't prepare enough for? It is consistently surprising to me how little people invest in doing their homework, especially if you're you're in a situation that's very, very stressful, like a merger and acquisition scenario. It's really important to understand the communication style, the history of that executive, really getting into understanding the motivation of that meeting. In fact, one of my favorite questions when preparing for a high-stakes meeting is to always early ask the question, what does success look like here? 
because that helps me know if we're both on the same page for what we're trying to deliver. And it also helps us acknowledge once we've reached that point. And I think a lot of people don't ask those just seemingly basic questions. They often concentrate on very complex algorithms or, you know, the other data involved and not in those basic fundamental things. And when you don't have that set as the stage for your conversation, you can easily get off track and and not come to a solution as easily as otherwise possible. And that's weird because that's that's such a basic question for even, you know, meetings way below the pay grade of a CEO that a lot of times we you get into the muck and, and the specifics of it and not thinking of, of a broader picture like <laughs> what is success for this one hour meeting that we have to go through or whatever. Yeah, it's so true because I find a lot of people do miss the forest for the trees. If you ask those really basic questions early on, in fact, just asking for an outline of the agenda in advance can help the person requesting the meeting like really come to a place of what do I need from this? Is this time best spent? And then those accepting the meeting can decide how that fits into their priorities. So really just taking a look at that basic level instead of just having that knee-jerk reaction of, wow, this is an important person. Like, this has to be the biggest priority for me. Well, we'll start working on that now. Um, as we uh, as we shift to talking about remote work, you were talking about that that your job as CEO, especially when you were chief of staff for Eric Schmidt, you were kind of set up and trying to master remote life even before this whole wave hit. Do you want to explain that a little bit? I do have a long history with remote working, actually. So I worked for Eric for nine and a half of the twelve years I was at Google. And I had several opportunities to master this remote working. The first came really early in my tenure with him when unexpectedly my then husband got an opportunity to clerk for the Ninth Circuit Supreme Court judge. And actually, I think I'd only worked for Eric less than a year. And I asked if I could work remotely from the Seattle office. And his first question was, well, did he take the California bar? And I said, yes. And he's like, okay, then he, he trusted that I'd come back. And so he just invested me. At first, the deal was that I would just come down once a month. Then it ended up being like every other week. I really just split my time between Seattle and California. So that was my first taste. It was really important initial experience being the one who was remote because I found what did and didn't work for me while I was remote from the rest of my team, the ways in which I needed to be creative, to feel connected, to be on the inside of projects and be able to raise my hand to contribute in other ways that it was harder to overhear those conversations or to kind of have a strong feeling of the direction of the team when you're not there physically. So that was a actually really important early lesson for me. And then later, when I was the senior most person on Eric's team, and we were later in our tenure at Google, both Eric and I, I um, volunteered to own some projects in the London office for four months, then in the New York office for the next three. But I was also managing I was the direct line manager to four people on our team. And I had to manage Eric, who was often with me or often remote. That time he was executive chairman and he was in a different country almost every single day. So I was really glad to have had that early experience with what worked best to keep a team in sync when remote from each other. Because my team was in California, I was in London or New York, and Eric was in a different country every day. And I think that if I had to boil it down to a couple of pro tips, again, it's, it's the, really the basics that make all the difference. Even now, when I'm consulting my CEO clients after I left Google, in fact, this week is the two-year mark of when I left Google after 12 years, the advice I'm giving my CEO clients now who are trying remote managing for the very first time, I was thinking in my head, had any of them done it before? No, all of them are doing it for the very first time. I think it's really getting back to the basics. 
And if there was only one rule, I would pick being really consistent with your communication. For me, that's everything. You really need that daily touch point. Some of my CEOs made the mistake early on of being like, well, if I do a five-minute sync with each person, it doesn't matter if we skip it today because it's only five minutes, we can do 10 minutes tomorrow. But it's actually not how the math works out. It actually is the consistency and the daily prioritization of keeping in touch with your direct reports that makes the difference over how much time it is. It's just that consistency that they know that you're there, you're aware of them, you're leaning into whatever problems or struggles they have, and that you're with that consistency able to pivot early and often and see ways in which your policies or strategy pivots are being implemented across the company. And then the second would be documentation of your procedures, of your decision making, and of how you're collaborating as a team. I'm lucky to have worked at Google for, you know, I started at Google in um, 2006. So I've been working in the cloud and using these remote systems for a long time. Even while I was firmly planted at headquarters in Silicon Valley, I was always working with teams across the world. In fact, I counted once and I had collaborated with teams in 52 different global offices at Google. And so (laughs) (laughs) I really had to, I had to lean into this and make sure it was efficient because it was my daily habit. I would spend at least half my day in my office at headquarters on video conferences with our teams in the Middle East and across Europe and Asia. So that became part of my daily practice. So I was able to say for my consulting client CEOs now that I'm coming to you from the future and I'm telling you it's going to be okay. When you're dealing with so many multiple time zones, East Asia time zones, United States and uh, North America and South America zones, and then Europe. Is there a trick? Because I heard people have done this, but it just sounds like you have to be on 20 hours a day and you, you can't do that. So what would the master say is, is something you need to know? Well, I, I definitely learned these lessons the hard way. I worked way too many 18-hour days before I came up with a systematic approach to how to solve this. So there's two methods that have worked well for me. While I was based in headquarters in California, I realized eventually that I could not <laughs> schedule my Asia meetings on the same day as Europe because there's no way to avoid an 18-hour day if you do that. So I would either try and front load Asia in the first half of the week and then back load Europe for the second half of the week. First part of the week, I'd stay late and then the other half of the week, I'd come early. Sometimes that was unavoidable because I had two fires going at the same time. But as much as possible, I I tried to implement that strategy when at headquarters in California. And then when I was based in Europe, which I am now again, but when I was in the London office, I just shifted my work hours. And so I would come into the office midday. I would use the mornings as my personal time and do laundry and work out and all those things. And then I would come in midday and then stay late. I was always the last one out. In fact, the lights would always turn off in the middle of my my video conferences (laughs) because everyone else had left the building hours earlier. So those are two ways that have helped me a lot to manage not having to be on 24-7. But like I said, the internet never sleeps. So sometimes those 18-hour days are unavoidable. (laughs) And when I moved to Spain... That was about three years ago. So my last year working at Google was managing my team in California while in Spain. And so I I had to do the same thing here is just start my days later and work until at least 11 p.m. every day just to fit everything in. Yeah, I mean, I think that whole uh, schedule and, and I think it's one of those things that as 
whenever we come back to what a, whatever normal is next, I think that flex schedule of taking breaks in the middle of the day, or a lot of people talked about the weekend Wednesday that they take Wednesday and Sunday off. That way they, they're not working five consistent days. I think we're going to see more of those shifts, which I think is great because people try to figure out the work week. And uh, as we talk about that, one of the things that was your work with board of directors and getting board of directors online. I mean, I've sat in on one or two meetings like that, but let's, let's just talk about how did board of directors work, let's say 18 months ago with how they communicated. Uh, before we talk about what's changed, can you set up kind of what the world of a of board of directors for a, a big company or, or, or a worldwide company, how that was working before the pandemic? Yeah. So pre-pandemic, for example, at Google, we had quarterly board meetings. Attendance in person was mandatory because even though we have the most sophisticated encryption technology on the planet, probably, we still didn't fully trust that it could consistently be counted on as a secure line. And so in person was mandatory every quarter. Now, pre-pandemic for myself, I'm a non-executive director on a board of directors for a company called Armadillo in Bristol, UK. And I we have monthly board meetings. So I would monthly... <laughs> spend three days in Bristol, UK, which took a, you know, by the time you drive to the airport and fly there and get the hotel, it's basically like a full day of travel both ways, plus a couple of days on the ground. So that was a significant percentage of my time was dedicated to that single commitment. So how many people, when you were doing these mandatory meetings, let's say at, at Google, how many, what's the percentage of people that were in Silicon Valley versus the people that had to come in and do what you did with Bristol that, that were taking two or three days to be there for one day? I think we had half of our board of directors were traveling specifically for that day. They would fly in after a full day of meetings the night before, right the night before, because that allowed for time in case there was any travel hiccups for them to get caught up and then be in the office. We The committees would start at 9 a.m. The board of full board of directors meetings would start at noon, and then we would often go until 8 p.m. in the early days, much later. In the early days, I remember being there until like 10 or 11, just because there were so many critical decisions being made in every meeting. And then as time went on, we kind of worked out those early strategies and the meetings didn't go quite as late, normally around six or seven. Okay, great. So when uh, in March now, as, as the world shifts uh, and everyone's kind of in crisis mode, what's a board of director's and the communications feel like, let's say, in March of this year? Yeah, we had a massive pivot. And it was interesting because trying to figure out a remote system while remote from my board was interesting. In fact, I had to, I threw in an extra layer of difficulty into that early pivot because I had flown from Spain back to the United States to speak at a conference that was canceled while I was in the air. <laughs> and then by the time I landed in the States, the next day, Spain closed their border and my return flight was canceled. There was no way to come back. And so I thought, okay. So I flew up to Seattle and I spent nine weeks of quarantine with my parents unexpectedly, which was a great silver lining. I loved being back with them. Um, but yeah, I, so I had every single one of my CEO clients in crisis mode at the same time. And I was in Seattle, which was minimum nine hour time difference from most of them. And so that, again, I, ha I, was, <laughs> I was working some very early mornings. I woke up at least at 4 a.m. every single day while I was there in lockdown to kind of deal with all these pivots. So what we've, what we've um, established now is that instead of meeting together once a month for these board meetings, as we were doing before and meeting live, 
actually it was at several stages. So first we just tried to shift that meeting to online where we would do a whole day sitting together on VCs from our respective homes. And that was, I don't know, it just didn't translate. It was exhausting, far more exhausting than it was sitting together in a room in their conference room in the headquarters. It didn't work. So then we were like, I said, okay, what I need is things were happening so fast that I was losing context in between. So we settled on a great rhythm where we have an hour check-in every week. And then at the end of the month, we do a longer like half-day session. And that actually has been amazing because I'm more in tune with the decisions that were being made, especially as we were pivoting very fast. Um, and so it gave me more context. And it also allows us to be more thoughtful about the agenda topics that we're talking about. I can do more research. I can come to them with some thought out proposals. Whereas if we were doing everything all at once, it just, I wasn't able to dig into it with the depth that I could before. I could just manage the breadth. And this allows for both depth and breadth of experience and recommendations. So actually, all of us agree that our meetings together are much more effective. We're a much more effective board in this new normal. And then as soon as Spain gets healthier, all of my boards, we're going to do quarterly offsites, more like a thinking retreat as a board or a strategy session. We'll get together once a quarter, and then we'll continue with these weekly small check-ins and then half-day sessions each month. Honestly, I think we've pivoted to a stronger place than we were at before. So part of this pivot is from crisis mode, you've kind of gone into a new world where it sounds like there's no going back to the, the, the old world of let's get together physically in this location and make this the only type of meeting is it might be a thing of the past. Correct. At least across all of my clients, I'm on a board of advisors for another company in London. My clients are, I have several in the U.S., a couple that were in the Middle East and in Asia. So I kind of saw the full spectrum of how COVID was affecting businesses globally. And all of us have pivoted in a way that we have no intention of going back to the old normal. So now we're trying to do lighter touch, more frequent, consistent communications. And 75% of my clients have got rid of their office space and their entire team is going to continue to work remotely in some way. Wow. 75%. Yeah. Now, these aren't companies the size of Google, although sure. Google has publicly pledged to allow their workers to work remotely through 2021 or indefinitely. Many Silicon Valley companies are doing that. But yeah, even small companies based in the UK or, or in Asia, they, they've made the remote work continuous. So they're, they're not going back to coming back into an office. And so what, they, what they've done is we surveyed the employees, found out what they need to be effective. The biggest request, number one, was please get my kids back in school. But aside from that. <laughs> oh, that's an oh, that's easy thing. <laughs> yeah. Well, aside from that, which we had no control over, was they really needed some of them, you know, especially if they're young and they had roommates, they didn't have a dedicated workspace. They didn't have a comfortable place to be working. But once we solved that, once they had the equipment and a setup they needed at home, 96% of the employees said they strongly preferred this remote system, which we're now calling remote plus. We, we just branded that today. Remote plus. <laughs> <laughs> Where instead, what we're saving on rent, we're now spending on employee benefits. So we're spending it on, if you need a creative meeting that is much better served in person, you have this pre-approved amount of money for a hot desk. If you need to work outside of your home, if you can't concentrate or be creative there, or if you need a team meeting, We've um, arranged these different co-working spaces that are constantly reserved and you just sign up for a seat and your coffee and everything is expensed and you, you don't have to ask for permission. You just have all these options at your fingertips. 
And then we're also providing some additional employee benefits that we couldn't afford before, focusing on their mental health, because we know this has been very stressful. People are kind of at the end of their ropes. Some kids are going back to school, some aren't, but people have really been doing the Olympics of pivots. And so we're trying to really supplement that experience with some things aimed at their overall wellness now that we don't have the expense of an office. And I think that's resulted in a really good situation for people as they're trying to invent their new system. And that's something they had said on the fly. I mean, I got to think of all the scenarios that people talk about. They never really thought about, well, when we shut down the office, what do we do instead of that? So this is something that's, that's really grown organic, like like we've seen with a lot of technology, things that we thought would take years to come to, we've done very quickly because of necessity. So true. I honestly think that's the wonderful silver lining of the horror of this global situation is that it has accelerated growth across all of my companies by at least five years. There were several things I had recommended to them early on where they said, well, maybe that would work at a company like Amazon or Google, but I don't think that would work here. And then they had no choice but to try out those seemingly crazy ideas I had proposed years before. And that was really what just kept them the feet under them. Luckily, all of my clients had, the last one had just converted to cloud. They had actually switched to G Suite just months, like literally in January, they switched all of their creative work into the cloud. And had that not happened, they would have gone under quickly. Whereas now um, with their new remote working system, it adapted really easily and they've actually performed even better this quarter than they did last year. So year over year, it's been a benefit. Yeah. And uh, earlier podcasts, I talked to our mutual friend, uh, Vicky Sokol Evans, who talked about that that's, that's been the main pivot for a lot of people. Some people have been scratching their heads about thinking about, well, maybe I should put it in the cloud. And it's like that now it becomes a desperate for the, one of the main reasons is I, I, IT is not down the hall anymore. Uh, if you have a problem or um, she has a really great segment of, of she knows what the sound is uh, or one of her clients knows what the sound is when you spill coffee on a Mac, what that sounds like. Um, and before <laughs> everything just basically blinks out. So, that that whole remote plus, as you called it, is is so curious and interesting. I'm sure, again, I'm sure many companies are looking at that. If you don't have real estate to pay for or rent to pay for, where those funds can go, and that's that that's a whole fascinating thing right there. Now, one of the things I, I saw that you do have a, a first book coming out, and I assume it's going through some of the things you've learned a, along this great path you've been on. Um, one of the titles of a talk that you've given, though. I'm assuming it's going to be part of the book. It's called Managing Up, How to Level Up and Stop Being Overlooked for Promotion. So I have to ask, what's one thing that I and probably most people aren't doing that we should start doing right away? <laughs> oh, I yeah, it's an exciting project, but it has also been flipped upside down by COVID for sure. My original publication date was supposed to be this coming spring, and now it's been pushed out to next October. So I have to wait a bit, but we just settled on a name. So the name is Bet on Yourself. And it really goes into that point you're making here about the keys to managing up. So for me, the secret is that most people take a very passive approach to their career. And when they're thinking about making a change, or maybe COVID has forced them to make a change, maybe they were furloughed or laid off, people, even in a job search, tend to be very passive. And for me, that passivity can be resolved by a single mental shift. If you're familiar with Carol Dweck's work around mindset, she talks about a learning mindset versus a fixed mindset. 
and I'm a big believer in this. If listeners have not read her book, drop everything right now and, and go get it. For me, this is the difference between creating opportunities or, or being passive. So in a performance mindset, you're trying to do everything perfectly. This is about getting a 10 out of 10 every time. So that means when you're looking at job opportunities or projects or promotions that are outside your comfort zone, you might think you're disqualified, so you don't even try. Whereas if you're in a learning mindset, you're going to seek out opportunities and projects and challenges that will teach you something. I'm a big believer in your job giving as much to you as you give to it. And I love to work. So that's a high bar. My job has to give me a lot. And so if you have this learning mindset, you come at something with what Larry Page, the co-founder of Google, calls being uncomfortably excited about it. So this means you're firmly outside of your comfort zone. While you have some core skills that you give you the foundation you need, you're constantly stretching yourself. And for me, the key to managing up and leveling up yourself is really living in that space. In fact, I did a webinar just last week where a CEO asked me, but what does that look like? And I said, if you are spending more than 80% of your average day in your comfort zone, you're not challenging yourself. If you're the smartest person in every room or the most senior person at every table, now is the time to level up. That for me has made 100% the difference in my career. I easily could have just been very passive in my very junior roles. I started at the bottom like we all do, but I created opportunities for myself. I invented these doorways that otherwise didn't exist by leaning into things I knew I could not do perfectly, but volunteered for anyway. And I think I was forced to do that because my first job out of university was working for Jeff Bezos. So that was deep end of the pool immediately, even as the junior most person on his team. It was very challenging. And so I learned to kind of trust those instincts and lean into it and not remove opportunities for myself just because I was fearful of not having done them perfectly before. Well, uh, Anne Hyatt, it's, this has been wonderful. Uh, thank you very much for your time uh, today. Uh, you can, we'll have uh, uh, links in the uh, show notes of how you can reach out to see Anne Site, who is a consultant for executives and companies across the globe, as we've heard about today on that. Anne, thank you very much for your time and insight, and be well. Thank you so much for the invitation. This has been really fun. Thanks for listening. Be sure to subscribe to the podcast to hear more stories and lessons learned from those working in the remote space.